It's time. We are not called to be nice. Sandy Rios, welcome, Sandy. Thanks for being here. We are often called to be confrontational. And here with me in D.C. is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. And you still like me or you you don't like me, James? Are you okay? You're all right. (laughs) I'm a musician. I can't help it. Uh, Longtime Fox News contributor Sandy Rios, thanks very much for being with us. We have, I think it's four to one youth. In America, wants gay marriage. Our kids are the product of public schools. No wonder they poll the way they do. It's time to stand up or we're going to lose everything we have. Director of Governmental Affairs for the American Family Association. Step up, speak up, say something, do something. This isn't a game. This is real life. Sandy Rios is with the American Family Association. A pro-life radio talk show host. Some things are worth fighting for. No, I don't think it should be mandatory. I wouldn't demand to be mandatory. It's like I don't think masks have to be made mandatory nationwide. And that's not the role of the federal government. Um, That is the role that institutions, private sector entities uh, and others may take. Well, that's where it started with the Biden administration. No, we're not going to mandate vaccines or even masks. No, we are not. How would we do such a thing? And then somehow we found ourselves just a few weeks into this position. Let's listen. Clip 11. What more do you need to see? We've made vaccinations free, safe, and convenient. The vaccine is FDA approval. Over 200 million Americans have gotten at least one shot. We've been patient, but our patience is wearing thin. And your refusal has cost all of us. So please do the right thing. You know, there's the mob boss, uh, President Joe Biden, threatening people if they, you know, just do the right thing. Kind of like going in as an extortionist to a business owner saying, you know, giving us 20 percent of your income is that's the right. We just want to help you along here. You, We just need you to do the right thing. Now, we're losing patience. I mean, how many movies have you seen with that storyline? And yet here we are. 200 million, according to him, Americans vaccinated and the push to vaccinate more and more and more. And now our children uh, and most people, except those that listen to this show, listen to Tucker Carlson, listen to other outlets like that, have no clue what the downside has been to this. I've asked Phil Kirpin to join me this morning. Phil is a longtime friend. He's the president of American Commitment. And Phil, the interesting thing to me about you is that I always used to think of you as the money guy, the numbers guy, the taxes, the business um, and I, I'm curious, what about this has gripped your attention to the point that you've been writing and thinking and speaking about this for months now? Well, Sandy, uh, first of all, great to be with you. Uh, you know, I think no- normally I do work on the fiscal, economic, regulatory issues. Uh, but when a virus is being used as a pretext to lock down the economy and shut down businesses and impose, you know, really uh, onerous rules and regulations and restrictions and limitations, it kind of makes things like taxes and spending seem a lot less important than usual until you can get, uh, you know, get get past uh, all of the virus-related restrictions. And I think that's why it's become uh, kind of my, my principal focus. I mean, the other thing, of course, is, you know, I've got four elementary school-age children, and so, you know, children have really borne the brunt of all of this, uh, which is, it's so extraordinarily unjust, considering they were essentially at near zero risk the whole time, uh, but they've been uh, forced to suffer through the many, many restrictions that have been placed on them. And so that kind of makes all of it personal to me as well. Phil, there is so much to talk about. I talk about COVID every day. I cannot avoid it. 
I don't think many of us can. My husband and I were saying recently that we're so sick of COVID. We're sick of our discussions being about it, of our lives being ruled by it, and yet it doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon. Uh, There is so much to discuss. I think I'm going to do this. I think I'm kind of going to go backwards a little bit. And so one of the most recent major developments on the COVID scene is President Biden and Dr. Fauci and the whole, the team of them, uh, the trustworthy medical team that President Trump has surrounded himself, uh, President Biden has surrounded himself with, have told us that uh, most Americans now need a booster shot because people who are vaccinated are getting the COVID shot, uh, COVID, they're getting COVID, and some of them are even dying. And so now the solution to them is a booster. Last weekend, the FDA did a, an eight-hour meeting which I know something about it, not much, but I'm hoping that you'll know more about it than I do. What was that? Who was at that? Who were, who were the people talking and contributing? And what does that meeting uh, actually mean? Well, this was the, um, this was the FDA's advisory committee on uh, vaccination. And so this is uh, not the final word. The FDA commissioner could, uh, we actually have an acting commissioner, which is amazing, by the way, that he still hasn't nominated anyone for that job, given all everything that's going on. Uh, The FDA acting commissioner could, if she wished, disregard uh, the vote of this committee, which is not binding. It's advisory. Uh, That said, you know, that, that's just not done. Uh, it would be extraordinarily unusual uh, not to go with uh, the vote of the advisory committee. And in this case, uh, they voted 13 to 3 against the president's plan uh, to uh, recommend third doses to everyone age 16 plus in the country, which is what the president had already announced was going to happen, if you recall. He even said the date. He said it would start September 20th. Uh, They voted not to recommend that uh, based on the data and the uh, risk-benefit analysis. Uh, They did vote to recommend it uh, for age 65 plus and for people with high uh, risk uh, occupationally, which probably means healthcare workers. Um, that was, you know, I, I saw it mostly as kind of a political compromise with the administration because they didn't have any better or more compelling data uh, for that than they did for adults more broadly. So, I, you know, I, I think it was, um, you know, it was good that they didn't just accept bullying from the White House uh, on sort of the first vote, but... It was a little disappointing that they uh, seemed to, for that second vote, uh, I didn't think the the, uh, data was any more compelling for that one, but they did go along with the White House uh, for seniors and and, uh, high risk. Phil, we did pull, out out of the eight hours, we pulled one piece of testimony. It sounded to me what they were doing was rapid fire. All the members of the committee were delivering concisely their particular views and reports on this of what they were seeing. And one of those was a guy named Steve Kirsch. Uh, He gave a really fast, we're going to just play a little portion of this, but I want you to hear, if you didn't already, and our audience to hear what he had to say in that eight-hour FDA advisory committee meeting last weekend. Let's listen. Hi, I'm Steve Kirsch. I'm executive director of the COVID-19 Early Treatment Fund. I have no conflicts. Uh, Advance to slide number four with the elephant. I'm going to focus my remarks today on the elephant in the room that nobody likes to talk about, that the vaccines kill more people than they save. Today, we focus almost exclusively on COVID death saves and vaccine efficacy because we were led to believe that vaccines are perfectly safe. But this is simply not true. 
For example, there were four times as many heart attacks in the treatment group in the Pfizer six-month trial report. That wasn't bad luck. Theirs shows heart attacks happen 71 times more often following these vaccines compared to any other vaccine. In all, 20 people died who got the drug, 14 died who got the placebo. Few people notice that. If the net all-cause mortality from the vaccines is negative, vaccines, boosters, and mandates are all nonsensical. This is the case today. Death rates. Um, uh, let's slide number seven, advance uh, to the number seven in lower part. This shows that the all-cause uh, death light rate in, uh, in three cases. Only the VAERS numbers are statistically significant, but the other numbers are troubling. Even if the vaccines had 100% protection, it still means we kill two people to save one life. Four experts did analyses using completely different non-US data sources, and all of them came up with approximately the same number of excess vaccine-related deaths, about 411 deaths per million doses. That translates into 150,000 people have died. Next slide would be slide number 11, uh, the nursing home. Now, the real numbers confirm that we kill more than we save. And I... All right, so that was the cutoff, but that was Steve Kirsch, and he was testifying uh, for that F, 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 on behalf of the FDA Advisory Committee in that eight-hour meeting. Uh, you know, Phil, when, when I look at the, the numbers of people who have died, it's very hard to ascertain that. I'm sure you've tried to do it as a numbers guy. What are you seeing? Is there, he says 250,000 people uh, in the United States, I'm guessing he's just saying. What are your thoughts about that from the data that you've reviewed? Well, just to be clear, that was a um, Steve Kirsch was one of the public commenters, so he was not one of the 16 members of the advisory committee. Okay. People were able to sign up. He is a pretty serious person, though. He was uh, he founded a bunch of companies, and he was a big big tech guy, uh, made a lot of money, and he's actually put a lot of his own money into uh, treatment research for COVID. And so he's been very active in uh, finding repurposed drugs uh, that that can help with COVID, and he's got a whole website and. A lot of research that he sponsored along those lines. Uh, you know, the the quality of data that we have on vaccine adverse events is very poor, and it's a it, it we should have much better data. We actually have a system uh, at FDA called Prism that was set up specifically for uh, vaccine monitoring, uh, post market vaccine monitoring, and it uses. Uh, insurance company data, claims data to figure out exactly what's going on and directly interacts with those databases. So it's not a self-report system. They chose not to use the PRISM system for this vaccine, which uh, I've never really had explained to me. And so I do not understand why that decision was made. And so the system that could have been used that would have provided high-quality data is not being used. And so all we have really is something called VAERS, which is uh, a self-reporting system where you know, anyone can file a report, and uh, that means that the data needs to be sort of cleaned and vetted, and it's not it, it's very difficult to analyze it and figure out exactly what's going on. And so what happens is you've got a lot of these papers and people who've analyzed these things, like Steve Kirsch, who say, you know, that based on what's in the VAERS database, we're seeing, you know, large numbers of these adverse events and even deaths. And then uh, the proponents of the vaccine will come back and say, well, that's low-quality data. Anyone can post anything in VAERS. Uh, we don't know if that's really what's happening. And so the, the, uh, the fact, the, the decision that was made not to use the better, more reliable 
uh, monitoring system that we have uh, has made it so you know people can do analyses, but then they're sort of dismissed uh, on data quality questions when it was the FDA's own decision that resulted in us only having the lower quality data. So that's the challenge uh, in looking at this, this stuff. Well, and the, the challenge also, Phil, is in trust. Because now we know, you know, there was an undercover video that came out a couple of weeks ago about some uh, um, a hospital. Out of, it was a doctor, and I don't know if the others were doctors, and they were talking about how to boost their numbers to frighten people more. All right, so we already also knew early on that the CDC was counting as COVID deaths. Uh, they said that they actually admitted in some hidden place that only 6% of the deaths they were counting were actually just COVID. The others died of something else and tested positive for COVID. And so, um, and then just last, a couple of days ago, it came to my attention that May 1st, uh, the government stopped counting uh, uh, people who were uh, vaccinated and had adverse reactions in the hospital. They were only counting the unvaccinated. Well, that's just blatantly. Now, that is a blatant, you could maybe excuse the other, perhaps you could think of an excuse if you wanted to, for the other reasons, but that makes us not trust anything we're hearing coming out of the Biden, Fauci, even the medical establishment. Your thoughts about yeah, that? Let me, yeah, let me, let me address. There, there, there are two issues there. First of all, the, the 6% number, uh, a lot of people misinterpreted what that number is. You have to be careful with that. 6% okay. was the percentage of death certificates in the COVID count that listed nothing other than COVID-19. They're the hey, only Phil, thing listed on the death Phil, hold, hold that thought, because this, this, this is something I want to be able to hear you say without having to hurry, and there's the music. So when we return, let's come back with that, because I use that all the time. I've repeated that many, many times, and if I've gotten it wrong, I want to make sure we correct it. So my guest is Phil Kirpin. He's the president of American Commitment, and um, we have a lot to talk about, but we really only want to speak what's true. I think the truth is alarming enough without you know, exaggerating any numbers or creating or bending anything that we're going to talk about. So we are committed to truth, and that's what you're going to get. This is Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. Andy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. Um, the dashboard and how it set up itself as far as how we get information out to the community on meaningful numbers. We do that on a weekly basis. So that's on our website and we've been sharing that through social channels as well, particularly those graphics that show the number of patients in house, the percentage of them that are unvaccinated the percentage of unvaccinated people in the ICU and the percentage of deaths and the numbers. So those are numbers that we put out as far as we don't get into details of floor. Right. Those other numbers are certainly out there. Right. I, I, I guess my feeling at this point in time is maybe we need to be completely a little bit more scary for the public. Then there's another comment, as I completely agree, there are many people still hospitalized that we're considering post-COVID, but we're not counting in those numbers. So how do we include those post-COVID people in the numbers of 
the patients we have in the hospital. So is that all the people who have been in the hospital since the beginning of COVID? Well, or that are still in it. And that's something that I can take to someone else. But I think those are important numbers. The patients that are still in the hospital, that are off the COVID floor, but still are occupying the hospital for a variety of reasons. Okay. Carolyn, we call those... I'm sorry, we, we're calling those recovered now. If you look at yeah. the Navant Health dashboard, they're listed as recovered. But I do think it, from our standpoint, we would still consider them a COVID patient because they're still healing. Yep. So I think that that needs to be highlighted as well. Because once they're off isolation, they drop from the COVID numbers. That's exactly right. Kellen, we can talk offline and yeah. how we run that up to marketing. And right. So I'm just going to say, Carolyn, I think we have to be more blunt. We have to be more forceful. We have to say something coming out. You know, you don't get vaccinated. You know, you're going to die. I mean, let's just, let's just be really blunt to these people. Yeah. Let's just be really blunt. Let's uh, make it more scary for the public. That's Dr. Mary Rudick. Uh, she's talking to her colleagues at Novant Health New Hanover. No, I can't remember this hospital. Novant Health New Hanover Regional Medical Center, and that is in uh, North Carolina, uh, planning on how to pad their numbers. And that's one of the reasons it's very hard to trust these numbers. Uh, my guest is Phil Kirpin of um, American Commitment. And Phil, uh, before we broke, I was re recanting, or re no, not recanting, reciting or repeating. Uh, the figure of uh, that there were only six percent of the CDC numbers of people who had died that were actually who had actually died of COVID, and you were correcting at least tweaking that. So I want to hear what you have to say. So let's tweak it. Yeah, I, if you look if you look at that table where they have that number listed, uh, it's six percent is the number of death certificates that listed nothing else other than COVID, and uh, then they also say, you know, the average number of comorbidities listed is like, you know, three point something. I, I haven't looked uh, in the last couple of days, but it's usually, you know, three point something. Uh, but, you know, you would expect if somebody dies you know, of sort of classic COVID that you might have something like pneumonia listed on the death certificate along with COVID or acute respiratory distress syndrome or something like that. And so, you know, without doing more granular analysis of the death certificates, it's hard to say that, you know, anything that has something other than COVID listed as well wasn't a, a, a true COVID death because you would expect pneumonia to be listed. And in fact, uh, to me, kind of maybe maybe a better way to, to kind of get a rough guess on how many of the COVID deaths were caused by uh, COVID versus were incidental um, is to kind of look at the pneumonia numbers, and about half of the death certificates have pneumonia listed. And so, if you figure, you know, the other half that don't list pneumonia uh, but have other various conditions, you know, that that to me are the sort of the pool that are suspect. And so, I think the number of uh, the number of sort of true causative COVID deaths is certainly more than five, five, five or six percent. It's probably more on the order of 50 percent or 60 percent. Uh, but we do have significant overcounting. And in particular, um, we have significant overcounting in the youngest age groups, even the CDC's own analysis. Uh, they, did an, they, they did an analysis where they basically looked at death certificates and they said, you know, how many death certificates have a cause of death that could not possibly be related to COVID? So, you know, something like, uh, you know, dying in an accident or a homicide or something, things that just couldn't possibly be related to COVID, but were in the COVID death count anyway, because they had tested positive, and so COVID was listed somewhere on the death certificate. And they said, they said those were only 2.5% of the overall death count, 
but they were 35% of the pediatric deaths, oh, and I think wow. 10% of the 18 to 20. And so the ones that are just totally unrelated couldn't possibly be related to COVID. It's a small number overall, but it's a pretty significant number in the lower age groups. So uh, that so let's 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 pivot now to talking about children because they are you know up they are <laughs> turning up the burner on vaccinating children. I know you know this. Uh, they say that there will be a COVID nineteen vaccine recommendation for children five to eleven soon. Uh, Pfizer is saying uh, they have you know data to show that a COVID nineteen vaccine triggers an a great immune response. That's my word. Great, my adjective. A great response in children. So uh, your thoughts about that, Phil Kirpin? Well, you know, I think that um, it's very important to understand that this virus does not present any unusual risk to children. It is a completely typical respiratory virus for children. It's no more dangerous than flu or RSV or any of the other typical viruses uh, that circulate for children. It's substantially more dangerous than those other viruses for seniors, of course, and we know that, and kind of the risk uh, is is very age-dependent. For children, uh, this is a totally standard, normal, typical respiratory virus, uh, and it's no more likely to hospitalize or kill a child than any of the other respiratory viruses. And so it's not, in my judgment, something that we should fear children getting or alter our lives or alter the operation of schools or any of the other things that we've done, I think, that have harmed children really for no reason. Now, now all of that said, you know, can the vaccine potentially reduce even these very, very low uh, risks even lower? And the answer is maybe, but we, we, you, you really can't determine that from a trial with only 2,200 kids, which is what Pfizer did. Um, because the risks are so infinitesimal, you would need millions uh, of kids in a trial to be able to detect uh, meaningful benefit. And so really all they have is sort of this antibody count. It was sort of a surrogate for immunity. But they, they even said that the trial was too small to determine any actual clinical benefit, and it would have to be enormous uh, to be able to determine a clinical benefit. And so uh, is there a benefit? Well, we don't know. We don't know if there's a benefit, and uh, any benefit would necessarily be very, very, very small because the risk is very, very, very small. Uh, now, all of that said, the question is, uh, is there harm? And there's always potential harm when you inject something into a person or into a child in this case. And, you know, the trial data is not released yet. We just have the press release from Pfizer, so we don't know exactly what they found. But they did say that the adverse events were comparable to the next age group, uh, you know, the older teens and the people in their 20s. And if you look at the data that they had for that, they, I think it was something like 10% after the first dose and 25% after the second dose said they were unable to perform regular daily activities. And so if you're telling me that a quarter of the kids are going to be, you know, too sick for a day or two after getting the shot uh, to do their normal activities, then to me that's not going to be risk, that's not going to be worth any potential benefit, which is so small uh, for children in the first place. And so, you know, I hope that uh, the, and I hope that that the risk of more severe reactions is not great. We do have a big problem in the, uh, in the, in the teen and 20 uh, men and males in particular with the heart cardiac issues with myocarditis uh, that looks like it's about one in 6,000 or so. Uh, If there's anything similar to that in these younger kids, then I would say there's no way it's worth it. Now, 
it is a lower dosage, and so you know that might make it less likely to see some of those side effects. But they're still demanding two doses, which I find crazy. Uh, I think the uh, because almost all of the adverse events have been after the second dose in all the age groups. I, I wish they would have tried a one dose regimen. But look, the bottom line is there there's the, the potential benefit is infinitesimal, tiny. Uh, the potential risks we really don't know yet. Uh, we don't have the data, and so, you know, I, I would say wait, and I, I, I certainly uh, would say uh, that you know we should fight very hard against any mandates because the idea that you would force someone to take something for such a tiny, even potential theoretical benefit when there's so much unknown, I find pretty offensive. And unfortunately, uh, the way things have been going, they are going to try to mandate these. And so I think that's going to be the, the big fight that we're going to have to push back on. You know, I have to say that you are calmer than I am about this one. <laughs> you are. I so, just try to I, present it. I just tried to <laughs> lay it out as, uh, as okay. accurately and simply as I could, because I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm probably personally as upset about it as you are, but I just try to present things and yeah. let people make their own decisions. Well, and that's good. Okay, so now I'm going to add the color. I'm going to be the hysterical mom because I, I uh, what, Phil, I've already seen so many uh, personal cases, not, not in my personal life, but videos of kids being harmed, uh, like the myocarditis. And by kids, I'm talking about young teenagers. Like there was a 13-year-old boy. I got a video of... Uh, a news report of what happened to him just probably two weeks ago. He was a perfectly healthy child. He took this vaccine, and then he died in his sleep. Uh, and they, they, the uh, autopsy revealed uh, what it's swelling or whatever it's fluid or swelling around the, uh, around the lungs. And then, of course, we had that. I know I'm talking about older teens now, but that professional, or no, that scholarship kid from University of Tennessee who was a golfer, who now is in the hospital uh, after taking the second dose because he's got such a horrible case of his heart is, I've forgotten exactly, but it's heart-related. And he gave testimony in the hospital bed about um, how, how horrendous it was. Uh, we, Eric Clapton, well, he's not a kid. Sorry, I'm, I'm moving to the adults. But uh, also, Phil, my it's my understanding that they did not do adequate studies on the effect on pregnancy and unborn children. And there's a lot of talk and at least, like, uh, beginning evidence that this, I guess they, when they used these humanized mice uh, and, tr you know, were experimenting with female mice who were reproducing or re could have those abilities, uh, that they saw some very adverse effects. So, and that's not been explored. So for your children, for their fertility, and also for boys, it's, I understand that it goes right to the, uh, to the, to the male, male t um, hormones also, testicles, whatever. Uh, so those things to me are just frightening to think that they might force our children to take that chance with their future in that way. Do, do you know anything about those particular, those reports? Well, you know, as I said, the, the challenge with all of the adverse event reporting is that FDA chose not to use their best system for monitoring this. And so the PRISM system that would be based on uh, insurance claims data and would be highly reliable is not being used. So what do we have? We have the VAERS data, which is uh, self-report. And so when we, we do have, you know, you can look up, you can pull up all these case studies, all these histories, all these reports and so forth, uh, but anyone can submit those. And so the question then becomes, you know, do we have confidence that, uh, that 
these things are actually happening, or do we think people are filing a bunch of false reports? Now, my view is that there are probably very few false reports, because who's going to do that? Uh, it just it doesn't seem very likely to me that there's a lot of false reporting in there, but that's the, uh, that is the uh, excuse that is used for dismissing uh, all of this data. Now, I, I will say in context, I mean, there have been 200 million some uh, you know, people who have been vaccinated with these vaccines. So when you find 100 or even 1,000 or whatever the number of adverse events is, uh, it, in the grand scheme of things, these, these things uh, are relatively rare. The vast majority of people, they get the vaccine, nothing happens, they're fine. So, you know, I think the, the question, the way you need to think about it is, you know, what are my risks of any of these things happening or, or my child's risks versus the danger of getting the virus without having been vaccinated and, you know, having, you know, the associated risks with that. And, you know, I think that's why seniors have overwhelmingly got the vaccine because they look at it, they say, well, this is, you know, the virus is very, very dangerous for seniors. I'm willing to take my risk with these, you know, relatively low probability uh, adverse events. Uh, it's, it's worth it. And so, you know, 90% plus of seniors have gone ahead and got the vaccine. And I think that's rational. That makes sense. As you sort of go down the age distribution, now the virus itself is less dangerous, and you start thinking about, you know, these potential adverse events and the unknowns in terms of long-term consequences, and the calculation changes a little bit, and that's why the vaccine uptake uh, tends to get lower as you get lower in age. I think that's totally rational, and, you know, my view, uh, Sandy, is that, um, you know, there's no right or wrong answer. Uh, the only thing that's wrong is trying to use force and coercion. Uh, what we ought to do is present all the data and all the information that we have as best as we can and let people make their own decision on, uh, you know, w whether it makes sense for them uh, to, to get the vaccines or not. And, you know, for me, to, to my way of thinking, um, you know, I don't think it makes any sense to vaccinate children because they're, they're at extraordinarily low risk, no more dangerous than any other virus. And frankly, when you have something that's dangerous for old people and not dangerous for young people, you want them to get it as a young person. You don't want to try to avoid it, uh, in my opinion. So uh, that's how I think about it. But I think the most important thing is uh, people being able to make their own decisions. Well, I do. I agree with that at this point. I think when I start, when this first started, I was a lot more neutral than I am now, though. I'm hearing a lot of things that just uh, are so concerning, Phil. There was this ABC Detroit had a Facebook question just uh, last week. Uh, please submit your stories of people that are unvaccinated that you know in your life who have had who have died or had adverse effects, and uh, they got 80,000 replies, uh, but they didn't get the replies they expected. They got all of these people talking about how their vaccinated friends and family had either died or suffered uh, adverse reactions. I don't mean all 80,000 replies. I just, uh, from what I read, it was the majority of the replies. So there's stuff out there that makes us have good reason to be concerned, and I remain concerned. I know you do, too. Uh, we have to take a break, and when we come back, I want to talk about that this is a new, uh, the investigation in the medical community and what's going on there. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. Don't forget to connect with Sandy Rios in the morning on Facebook or email Sandy at Sandy at AFR.net. That's Sandy at AFR.net. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. Sandy Rios back with you. My special guest is Phil Kirpin of American Commitment. And uh, Phil and I are talking about the latest on COVID. Phil is a numbers guy. And I love that about him. I tend to get, you know, flail about and get pretty upset about things. And I appreciate the level-headedness he brings to this discussion. 
Um, I would say one thing that's interesting to me is the response of the medical establishment. And I'll just say anecdotally, when my husband nearly died of COVID about six weeks ago in the hospital, most of the people treating him in the ICU did not have the vaccine and did not want to have the vaccine. They were, you know, they had all that hazmat, practically dressed in hazmat suits, but they would not take the vaccine. We're seeing that happen around uh, the, the country in various hospitals. I think in Indiana, they, one healthcare system just lost 125 workers when they mandated uh, the vaccine. So there, there is a reason. I don't know why. Let's just say there's got to be a reason why healthcare workers are, shall we say, vaccine hesitant. Project Veritas with James O'Keefe just did an undercover video that I want to ha- have you ha- hear a taste of uh, in a hospital. This is a doctor speaking to her colleagues, and then the person that he's interviewing is a part, I think, of... Uh, HHS. She's a federal employee who's coming out as a whistleblower. Let's listen. It hasn't probably uh, been done because the, the government doesn't want to show that the darn vaccine is full of, is full of Tell us about who this person is. Dr. Gonzalez is one of our emergency room doctors at Phoenix Indian Medical Center. And she's a federal employee? Correct. Now you got this guy in room four who got his second dose of vaccine um, on Tuesday, has been short of breath. He's He's got bronchomyocarditis. Yes. Oh, this is... What patient was she referring to? She was uh, referring to that patient, that 30-something-year-old patient that had congestive heart congestive failure. Congestive heart failure. And in that particular patient's case, it was not reported. No. The problem in here is they are not doing the studies. People that had it, you know, and the people that have been uh, uh, vaccinated, they're not doing any um, antibody testing. Super fishy. Not that it hasn't been done. It hasn't been published. (laughs) It hasn't probably been done because the government doesn't want to show that the darn vaccine is full of of the government doesn't want to show that the vaccine is full of It's not doing what it, its purpose was. May I see your badges? You're Jody O'Malley with the Department of Health and Human Services. This is the United States government identification. I'm looking at the CDC website. It says that you're required to report adverse events following vaccinations. One of those would be uh, congestive heart failure. That's a huge one. Were there other instances that they... They didn't report? Oh, I've seen dozens of people come in with an adverse reaction. Yeah, it's really sad. She had just come back from surgery, from leave. So what are we looking at here? You're looking at me transferring her um, to uh, a higher level of care that could handle her condition. And this is a a colleague at your hospital who got sick. She didn't want to take it because of her religious beliefs. And she was coerced into taking it. Why are you choosing to blow the whistle? It's not what a lot of people would do. They're scared, they're afraid. Are you afraid? I wouldn't necessarily say I'm afraid because my faith lies in God and not man. This is evil at the, the highest level. You have the FDA, you have the CDC, that are both supposed to be protecting us. Are you afraid they're gonna retaliate against you? Yeah, 
I'm a federal employee. What other federal employees do you see coming out? But you put your faith in God. Amen. That was a new video by uh, James O'Keefe. You can find it at projectveritas.com. So uh, my guest again is um, Phil Kirpin. Phil, that's pretty emotional. And I, I would really inter- be interested to know your response to that. Is that emotion? Is it fact? How, do we, how should we hear that? Well, I think that um, I think a lot of the healthcare workers were convinced that the vaccine would roll out and the disease would be gone and it would all be over and it would be a miracle. And obviously, that hasn't been their experience. Uh, instead, they've continued to have uh, you know pr- pretty brisk pace of uh, patients coming in. And um, you know, I think the you know the the implication for them is that this this vaccine didn't do what they told us it was going to do, and I, I do think that uh, there's pretty good evidence, uh, you know, for, sort of broadly that the vaccines have reduced risk of hospitalization and death. But they told us that was going to be 100 percent, and it's obviously not. It's uh, it's something significantly less than that. And uh, in terms of infections, it seems to have almost no effect at all. Huh? The vaccinated people are spreading it quite a lot, and so I think you know this is those healthcare workers basically saying you know, using that bleeped word to decide, to, to describe uh, what, what, you know, what they're experiencing in terms of the actual effectiveness. You know, just from a layman's uh, viewpoint, as I sit back and we've, again, had these discussions on the air, you, there are certain things you look at and you say, that doesn't make sense, even if you don't understand the science of it, you don't have the accurate numbers, uh, all of that. But one of the things that makes no sense, Phil, is that we do have effective treatments, we have effective treatments. Uh, we had hydroxychloroquine. I have to tell you, I have personal friends, missionaries in Zimbabwe for, with their parents for decades, and hydroxychloroquine has been given to the Africans for malaria and has proven to be very effective for COVID for decades. And they call it, the, the black Africans call this the Saturday pill. And, and, you know, Africa, as far as I know, is not struggling with COVID. Then we have ivermectin, and we just saw a report that India... Uh, was, you know, overwhelmed with cases when this new variant came out and they started a treatment of ivermectin and suddenly they, they don't have a problem anymore. So now we have these monoclonal antibodies, which uh, Governor DeSantis has been putting up, you know, places all over Florida to treat people and to have it's having great effect. And now what does the Biden administration do? They, they want to con- take over the supply and control it and kind of choke that out. Maybe that's another statement, but that's the way I hear it. That's um, so. What's going on here, Phil? Yeah, it's really a remarkable situation because President Biden walked out on September 9th in his big COVID speech, and he said monoclonal antibodies are uh, phenomenal; they're highly effective, and I'm going to increase shipments 50 percent across the country. Then three days later, he did the opposite. Uh, for all of the southern states, they cut their supplies by about 50%, and they prohibited any healthcare provider from ordering directly from the distributor. And so the, the supply now can only be distributed by the federal government through the states, then to the providers, and uh, they, they're setting weekly quotas, and those weekly quotas are a huge reduction for the southern states, including especially Florida, that have been using them at large scale and, and uh, with very positive effect. And uh, these treatments, you, know, you can take it one of two ways. You can either take it as an IV drip or you can take it as a series of four subcutaneous injections, which is, you know, shots right under your skin. 
they reduced the risk of hospitalization and death uh, about 75 to 85% uh, in the trial data. So they're extremely effective. And, and what is really great about this treatment compared to a lot of the other ones is people tell me they feel the effect right away. So they go, they get it, and they feel better almost right away. Like within a day, they feel better. So you have people who've been sick for days, they go and they get the treatment, they feel better right away. Now, you can imagine that if a governor of a state has been promoting this very aggressively, uh, you've got an awful lot of uh, grateful people who feel better and credit the governor for that. And so I think this was a, in addition to being a big public health victory uh, for Governor DeSantis, it was a big political victory for him that it was working so well. And it sure looks to me like what the administration is doing is sabotage, and uh, they're risking people's health and their lives in some cases uh, as a consequence of this. And if you look at their explanation of why they're doing it, Sandy, it's remarkable. They, they, first of all, there's no shortage. Uh, the manufacturer says they can meet all demand for, for this treatment. And so the, the shortage was artificially created by the Biden administration. And in their press release from HHS, they said they did this for, quote, geographic and temporal <laughs> equity. Equity. And temporal yeah. equity was a new one to me. I had to sort of scratch my head a little and figure out what they were saying. And I'm pretty sure what that means, uh, I could be wrong, but they haven't explained it, but I'm pretty sure what that means is they're denying treatment to people in the South who need it now in order to build up a stockpile for the future in case they need it in the winter in the North instead of just producing more, which uh, I find extremely unethical. But uh, that is my read of what geographic and temporal equity means. Well, I thought that uh, Governor DeSantis said he was going to, that they were going to be purchasing, purchasing monoclonal antibodies from, directly from GlaxoSmithKline. Are you saying the Biden administration is stopping that too? Well, they're, they're in negotiations. The, uh, the, the, the manufacturer that everyone had been using is Regeneron, and they have an exclusive federal contract, and so Biden was able to essentially pull all of the supply and ration it for the Regeneron version. GlaxoSmithKline has their own version, which did very, very well in clinical trials. They have not, the, the feds have never bought it. And so, uh, in theory, uh, I don't know how much supply they have, and, but, but the governor of Florida is negotiating with GlaxoSmithKline to buy their version to replace the Regeneron that Biden pulled out. And I don't know the exact current status of those negotiations. It'll be very interesting to see if he's able to pull that off uh, and, and sort of backfill, uh, work around what the Biden administration did to them. And it'll also be very interesting to see if uh, the feds now do step in and buy from GlaxoSmithKline, which was authorized all the way back in May. Uh, if they do, uh, I, I think it would be just to block Florida. And so that's uh, I'm watching that, but as far as I know, uh, the governor's still negotiating that deal, but it's not completed yet. Phil, almost every day I get email from listeners who are really, uh, let's say, feeling the squeeze. That's probably too mild. The force uh, to take vaccines. It's I, I, An Army captain with five children has contacted me, and lots of people working in various industries, healthcare, and all, all that, you know, being forced or with the threat of losing their jobs. It, it occurs to me, like with this, uh, the, the video that uh, James O'Keefe, the undercover video, uh, Jody O'Malley, the HHS employee there, is describing a friend of hers who was also, I think she said that this girl was also a federal worker who was forced to take the vaccine even though she didn't want to. And now she's, uh, it, it hints at, I guess she had an adverse react, a reaction. I think she died, although I'd have to listen again to make sure. Isn't there, isn't there, a, like, this is not, 
what was put in place earlier, where the companies that produce the vaccine cannot be sued because they had some sort of immunity. This is an entity forcing you to take this chemical and then an adverse reaction from the chemical. It seems to me that businesses and even the government itself should, would, should be liable for lawsuits, wouldn't you think? Well, it's interesting because the original OSHA uh, ruling on this was that if an employer requires you to take the vaccine and you have an adverse reaction, then that is a recordable event for the employer and uh, they are liable for that. And OSHA originally posted that interpretation on their website, which seems like the pretty straightforward interpretation. Then they changed it, and now they have language on their website that says because the goal of the government is to get everyone vaccinated, it is not a recordable event, and there is no employer liability uh, for adverse events, even if you require the vaccine. And uh, they said they they said that they've uh, temporarily suspended it until like some date in 2022 or 2023 or something like that. Uh, and so the the federal government claims that there is no, that liability does not attach. Uh, we've not seen that matter litigated yet, so. You know, it's not necessarily the case that judges will go along with that, uh, but that is the position that the federal government is now taking. It seems clear that they are uh, hell-bent on driving everyone uh, to, you know, to get this vaccine at all costs. Uh, they're trying, you know, they're shaming the unvaccinated and fill in the blank, and they're, they're causing people to lose employment. They're charging employees who don't get it more money for their health care, and on and on it goes, all kinds of creative ways to punish so the end game for them, it seems, to get 100% of Americans, including our children, vaccinated. And then what, Phil? There's the music. And then what? What do you think their goal is? Once they get that achieved, what will they do? It's a good question because uh, the vaccines don't prevent transmission. So the disease isn't going to go away even then. And uh, I, I, don't know, I don't know what they'll do next if they actually achieve that. Well, neither do I. <laughs> so... It means that leaves the discussion for another day. Uh, Phil Kirpin, always a pleasure to talk to you. I thank you so much for the, the research you've done on this and for the uh, reason that you bring to the discussion. It's a, He's, again, president of American Commitment. Is there anything you would refer them to to read? Uh, I would just also mention that I put a lot of things on my Twitter, which is my last name, Kirpin, K-E-R-P-E-N. And I do a, uh, a daily newsletter with John Fund and Steve Moore that's free. If people want to sign up for that, it's committeeunleashprosperity.com. Okay. All right. There you go. All right. Thanks a lot. Sandy Rios in the morning.